here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105 FM in Mokopane. Very soon we will be joined by Miss Kim Robinson because we're trying to get hold of her. But Miss Shaista Kazi is on the line. She's, of course, a member at the Pan African Bar Association. And when I say member, I really mean she's an advocate, she's a counsel. So, Miss Kazi, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us here on SAFM Viewpoint. Please do excuse my hoarse voice. It is a flu, no more than that. But let's engage each other. Are you well this evening? Thank you so much for having me on board. I am well this evening, and um, welcome to your listeners. It's good to be able to speak about a topic that I'm passionate about. Get right on. Get right on with that passion. Specifically, talk to us <laughs> about how Pabasa itself has come on board as a partner to this workshop, the value especially of this workshop, and what, it's a, it's a cliched question, I suppose, but it's a very necessary question. Why should the listeners be interested in this. I mean, it is an issue of public importance. It's a matter of public affairs that really does affect us. There's nobody in this country who cannot and does not relate with crime. So between Pabasa and the shift towards Pabasa being part of this workshop, go to town in ensuring that you bring the listeners on board, please. Thank you, Sumyazi. Perhaps I can start with the last part of your question, which is why should listeners be interested in in this topic, which Really, you know, the three-day workshop is um, aimed at legal practitioners. But the reason why I think it's so timely for listeners and certainly for the broader public is because just in the past week, we've had three incredibly high-profile and incredibly important asset forfeiture freezing orders coming through our courts. And perhaps I can just um, remind people that um, at the end of last week, our Free State High Court... Um, ordered the freezing of 18 million rands held in South African business accounts by certain Lesotho government officials. That is a, a massive win both for, for Lesotho and for um, the South African courts enforcing that or freezing order. Also in our Pretoria High Court, and I think five days ago, they um, blocked the sale of the Optimum Coal Mines, which all your listeners I'm sure are well familiar with. And that was in terms of the preservation order sought by the National Prosecuting Authority and the Asset Forfeiture Unit. And that was upheld by our court. And then following a failed appeal in the Constitutional Court, I think today or Friday, um, we now know that Mr. Bosrov's um, assets in South Africa up to 95 million rand has been frozen, and that remains in a preservation order um, held by the NPA. So just in the past five or six days, we've really had um, the great and important wins for, for our prosecution authority and our asset forfeiture unit. And so that's why it's of interest, and it's of value for listeners to see that when people say crime doesn't pay, Forfeitures really aimed at ensuring that both the proceeds of a crime as well as any instruments used to further the criminal offence are taken away from accused people and convicted people. So, so that's the importance and relevance of the, of the matter. But for Pabasa, 
you know, it's really important that we are seen to it's upskill our members, our advocate members and our attorneys in the profession, and that we make sure that these important matters are worked on by our black practitioners and our female practitioners, and that there are no excuses that um, our members and our young practitioners are not involved in important cases that are complex and that serve the social good. And um, the Pius Langer School of Advocacy, which is under Pabasa, is really, really proud and thrilled to be partnering with the Attorney General Alliance Africa in bringing this three-day workshop um, to, our, to our members and to um, public practitioners. I do hope that you will bear this interview in mind when there is an interview for a pupil at Pabasa and maybe in time at the JSC. But perhaps I shouldn't say that too loudly, given all the mayhem that has surrounded that institution. Maybe but you... not the JSC, but certainly this interview will be born in mind. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's talk about these institutions, because I think South Africans would have a vested interest to know the work of these institutions. The AFU, Assets Forfeiture Unit, Unit the NPA, National Prosecuting Authority, the South African Police Service, the Hawks, the SIU. These are essentially crime-busting, crime-fighting legal entities in the constitutional setup, in the democratic matrix of these institutions, some of them Chapter 9 institutions. <coughs> that are their institutions to fight crime in this country. But the ordinary and average South African, if you were to ask them, is South Africa winning the fight against crime? I would imagine they would say no, or crime has reached levels that are of serious concern to them. How do we engage that critical question so that, for instance, this workshop has a, that element of credibility because South Africans' mindset perhaps moves towards believing, really, that institutions are there for them and are committed ultimately to the rule of law? The starting point of your question, I think, underlies a bit of the answer in that there are all these different units and different aspects of crime fighting. And most South Africans or our, our family and friends are going to have an interaction with the police. And that's their first port of call. What people don't see is the units and the bodies and the organizations that that are the, the backdrop behind the SAP that where do their complaints go? Where do their concerns go? At what point does it reach the prosecution? At what point does it reach, for example, the Hawks or the Asset Forfeiture Unit or the IPID, for example, which is another very important um, organization? And I think the more each unit or sector plays its part, I think that's when the ordinary South African sees that the crime-fighting or crime-busting work has a consequence and has an effect. And so it actually reverberates back to the ordinary person. I think what all these units do so well and what perhaps the public don't see enough because the public simply sees, sees the headlines, whether it's Bob Ross 
or um, optimum coal mines in the Guptas mm. and so on, is that they see a headline of a court win three years later. And, and it's all quite hidden between the uncovering of the offence or the suspected offence or the irregularity or the theft or the corruption and it's silence for three years until a fantastic court order comes out now in the past three days and people celebrate us. Hang on to that point because after the ad break I'm going to engage the question of justice delayed is justice denied and the perceptions that carry between time periods between justice after the break. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. We're talking law, we're talking crime, and my guest this evening is an advocate at the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa, a new legal entity affiliated to the GCB, and that's to ensure that there's a sense of equity and transformation of the advocates' profession in the country at large, Ms. Shaista. Kazi is on the line this evening to talk to us about a workshop that is currently taking place between today and ends on Wednesday, a workshop on assets forfeiture cases, particularly with a cross-border slant and crime fighting at large. I do remind you, please, voice note rules. There have been a couple of voice notes that have come through at 1 minute 19, at 1 minute 11. Let's try and keep it under a minute, please. So I'm going to ask 5138, that's the number at the end, Eight. Two seven two. That's the number at the end. To truncate your thoughts, please, and get them through to us soonest, so that we can actually engage them. We are talking about the work of the Assets Forfeiture Unit in this country, in collaboration, I suppose, with its international agencies. But before we go there, Ms. Kazi raised the point of the interval between, say, the news headlines of there being an arrest or the commencement of a case and the time it takes to finalize the matter sometimes takes a bit too long and certainly perception plays a major role in whether or not citizens feel there's sufficient franchise between them and their institutions from a law enforcement agency purely by the elapse of time we've all heard this before justice delayed is justice denied. You want to carry on with that being the pointer from your last point, please, Ms. Kazi? Thank you so much, Mungezu. I just wanted to do one correction. Pagasa isn't affiliated to the GCB. I beg your pardon. Um, I thought it was. I'm sorry. No, no, absolutely fine. It's a separate um, bar association registered under the LPC, under the Legal Practice Council. Very well. And um, the School of Advocacy, the Pius Lunger School of Advocacy is one of um, firstly, the first training institution in the country, but um, really um, an emphasis on the idea of continuing development and training of, of both attorneys and advocates. But to, but to take your, your where we left off, um, I wanted to say that you're absolutely right, that justice delayed is, I think, one of the primary concerns of people in the community, whether they're experiencing white-collar um, crime, which is often... <clears throat> involved in asset forfeiture or often the source of asset forfeiture claims or um, violent crime or theft. It's, it's the length of time to, to find resolution and find closure. And given the few organizations that you have mentioned that are involved in the criminal justice process, and that doesn't include our court systems, our, our you know, transcription services and um, the the rights of leave to appeal that both litigants have 
once the judgment is out. That can certainly be as if the, the criminal justice system is, is working at a snail's pace rather than as swiftly as, as perhaps people would prefer. And um, one of the things I think that is quite important in going back particularly to asset forfeiture and really following or targeting the proceeds of criminal offences is that that requires expert forensic investigations. And I'm sure all our listeners who are involved in, in accounting or forensic audits and chartered accounting and so on are very familiar with that, that while much is placed on the rule of law and the criminal offence as we know it, whether it's theft, corruption, espionage, embezzlement, ultimately the evidence for those crimes rest with very clear forensic accounting and accessing that evidence of various bank accounts, which are often offshore. In um, if, And that does take time. And cooperation between different countries does take time and different law enforcement agencies. And perhaps, I don't want to speak mm. too long, but perhaps if I can give um, the two examples that we had this week, um, the one of the optimum coal mines, as we are aware, um, the accused persons in, in the Gupta corruption, they are now in Dubai, as we understand from the media. And that involves our law enforcement agencies and engaging with their law enforcement agencies abroad and making requests for data, for bank accounts, for evidence on which to in fact, build that case. Similarly, the the freezing order granted in the Free State High Court for 18 million rand and held in various South African bank accounts, that requires mutual legal assistance between the Lesotho governmental prosecuting authorities and our prosecuting authorities. So, and Bobarov, as we well know, and his son are living in Australia at the moment. And so, so much of our globalized world is an acknowledgement that the proceeds of criminal offenses, whether they are properties, cars, um, bank accounts, websites, often now in the digital age, um, all of that is very much cross-border. And so, when we created or conceptualized this workshop with the Attorney General Alliance, the Pius Lunga School of Advocacy was really trying to bring together our expert panelists and colleagues in the U.S. and in Kenya and locally in South Africa mm. to really engage about what are those challenges? Who are we dealing with? What do different prosecuting authorities in different jurisdictions expect or want or how swiftly can they work. And so I think while workshops are often aimed, seen as a lecturing opportunity, I think this workshop is far more fruitful because it is an engaging and debate opportunity and to, get, and to allow South African practitioners to meet their counterparts in other jurisdictions. Well, let's engage that counterpart equivalent, the CEO at Renaissance Strategic Solutions, and of course, more particular to this, the country coordinator for the Attorney General Alliance, 
Kim Robinson. She's now on the line. Kim, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. We beg your pardon for not being able to connect a little earlier. But this is as good a time to connect because I think the aspect, and more particularly when you talk with crime as it happens, it's in certain instances, if not in specific instances, cross-border by nature, more particularly your syndicated groups, the, the the guys who really know what they are doing, they're not just going to operate within one jurisdiction. And this is the importance of the Attorney General Alliance of Africa, isn't it? Good evening. Good evening, and good evening to your to your listeners. You're absolutely right. Organized crime is organized. They work in a coordinated global network fashion to pull off very sophisticated crimes. So as a counter to that, everyone in the criminal justice value chain also needs to be working in a coordinated, networked, global way. So first of all, within South Africa, you would need your police officers, investigators, the Financial Intelligence Center, prosecutors, all working together as a team instead of just working in silos and not speaking to one another. So in the trainings that Attorney General Alliance Africa has, we try to get different representatives from those different areas of law enforcement and criminal justice in the same room to start building those relationships. So that's the relationship within countries. Mm. Between countries, we also try to get people from beyond the borders of South Africa. The formal arrangement is through a mutual legal assistance agreement, which is a country-to-country agreement, and that has to be in place. However, what might be more effective and efficient when you have a live case are the informal relationships that you have person to person. So, for example, you've got, you know, some someone in, you know, um, someone from the, on the continent, Kenya, for example. Yes. Uh, and we have a mutual legal assistance agreement with them. And right, you remember that one of your colleagues or one of the presenters in a AGA Africa workshop indeed is based in Kenya. Let me just call that person, ask them a few questions, and get the ball rolling so that my criminal matter is not lost in the bureaucracy. Can we talk about the fact that, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, one of the issues that many might see as an inherent challenge in certain jurisdictions, and I wouldn't say ours is a particular exception relative to the next, is the level of skill that is in fact required to go after the criminals. Organized crime is organized crime, as you conceded earlier on, and these guys know what they're doing. They've got the skills that go with that. And implicit in crime fighting and counter-corruption, counter-terrorism and all of that, you almost need criminals to catch these criminals. And I'm not suggesting the agencies ought to be criminals themselves, but their skill level has to be there. Their training has to be there. And the systems have to be sufficiently adept to be able to move with the times. For instance, our technology is now that created a particular terrain that facilitates this sort of crime. How much is a problem in your experience that you have encountered, say, on the African continent relative to the United States, where perhaps we might say they've got the money to back up the agencies themselves? Well, look, I I don't think there's a criminal justice or law enforcement agency on the planet that's saying, oh, we have enough funding, we have enough resources. There's always There are always constraints on both the human, the financial, and the institutional resources of any one of those uh, organizations, wherever they are. I think it just varies to, to degree. In South Africa and on the African continent, I mean, 
quite frankly, your preface to the question is the raison d'etre for Attorney General Alliance Africa. You know, crime doesn't respect borders. So it's not just a South African problem or an African problem. It becomes a global problem. So we've got to address it in a global, coordinated fashion. Mm-hmm. And you're right. If we don't have the technology, if we don't have the, if we're not nimble, and we don't have the basic skills to address these sophisticated crimes, we're going nowhere. So as you well know, the Zonda report on state capture was just released. There have been revelations and allegations around misappropriation of funds. And these involve very sophisticated uh, operations, you know, sham transactions, sham companies. All of that needs to be figured out, followed, so you can follow the money and get the evidence to actually prosecute and prosecute successfully. You're right. That's not a walk in the park. Um, and, in fact, that's why there's been conversations between the private sector and NPA about how do we in South Africa bolster the NPA so that the public's very righteous cry for justice is met with action. So, right, we, we need the skills, and this is, this is the process that we are engaged in as Attorney General Alliance Africa. I am the country coordinator here in South Africa. We also have country coordinators in Ghana, Kenya, Malawi, Nigeria, Rwanda, Uganda, Zambia, and the Seychelles. So we're trying to work throughout the continent so that we build these relationships, we build these skills to address crime in a real way so that people feel that justice is indeed being done. What are your thoughts as you sit at home, as you have listened now to the voices of Ms. Kim Robinson, CEO of Renaissance Strategic Solutions, and more directly to this, the country coordinator for the Attorney General Alliance Africa? Let's hear your thoughts equally to what you have heard from Shaista Kazir, who is an advocate and member of the Pan-African Bar Association. When we're talking about assets forfeiture, when we're talking about cross-border crime and South Africa's continued fight against crime and the continued pursuit of the democratic ideals, what are your thoughts, both from experience and in particular to this conversation, which is predicated on the fact that some legal practitioners are coming together to better the outcomes in relation to the fight against crime with a particular focus on the forfeiture of assets? I have two callers so far, Colin in Cape Town, KGM in Mafikeng or Mahikeng. Colin, good evening. Your thoughts, please. Good evening, uh, Sengheza. You know, as you mentioned, it takes uh, take a thief to catch a thief. You know what I mean? In other words, uh, a crook to catch a crook. Yes. You've got to think like them. Now, our secret service, our police, our detectives... They've got to be trained how to think, though they are not criminals, but they've got to think the way a criminal thinks. And another thing, too, our justice system, as far as I'm concerned, I've heard so many cases on your radio station in the mornings, in the evenings, every... I've been listening for months and months. Some cases get off lenient, and some cases get harsh penalties. And the, the kingpins are never, ever, ever caught. The traffickers are caught. Where, where is our law? Where is, we got to look for those people that are distributing those people 
the mules on the streets and those things. We've got to get rid of those people because everybody is trying to make a living in Gaza. So the kingpins I never ever heard on the radio station or even on their news. They've been busted. It's always the one on the road. And uh, I, I just heard um, um, two million rands worth of uh, drugs uh, in, a, in a, um, a, a taxi, a combi. They arrested the driver. But where did this driver get it from? Where is the kingpin? No, now, they, adver- they advertise on the radio. They, they caught the driver. Instead of keeping it quiet for a while, interrogating the driver, don't advertise it on the news, don't advertise it on the radios, nothing. And go for that kingpin and give um, the driver a lenient sentence if he spills the beans. No, I'm with you. Colin, you're essentially asking the critical question of the criminal behind the criminal. Thank you so much, Colin, in Cape Town. The question is, Kim, the question is, Shyster, the criminal behind the criminal, the mind behind the deeds. That's something for you to consider, please, as we continue with our callers. I'll get back to you for your responses. KGM in Mahie, Mahikeng, Mahikeng. Good evening, uh, Songezo. Good evening to your guests and, and to my fellow listeners. Uh, look, crime is big business for the, the people that Colin is talking about, the kingpins. It, it's not the kingpins that Colin is referring to. The people behind the, the corrupt governance um when when you see a state allowing crime or corruption and and you have the likes of your guests talking around the issues running away from the facts and and in my humble view here's the fact for as long as we're not going to deal with the root cause of what causes and sustains crime and corruption we will have this conversation in the next decade that the content uh, and, and the mantra of the conversation would not have changed. Uh, you see, when you show me somebody who is stealing a loaf of bread because they are hungry, a pint of milk because they are hungry, and they have been systematically turned into criminals by the big criminals themselves, and, and by extension, if you look at corruption or crime that is happening at the level of local government, uh, local government, I'm referring to like South African government's corruption as it were, you should just go through it song as well and ask yourself questions as to why certain corrupt and criminal cases are not even dealt with. My putting short as a food for thought. There was Margaret Thatcher's son, who came here in, in South Africa, was caught in Zimbabwe. They were planning a coup. Do you know what happened to, to him? Do we know of the criminal cases that were open against him? Nobody says anything about it. It's quiet. Do we know what happened to the people who stole the land in this country that has caused mayhem to this day? When we talk about it, we, we are going backwards. We're supposed to move forward. People like Colin will tell you, no, that was in the past. But they are, that 
today, as we speak now, they're busy enjoying the benefits of that crime. So when we talk about crime, seriously so, let's not, let's not talk about the, 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 the basic things that are small. Let's talk about the root cause. Then and only then, Songhez, we will be talking seriousness in terms of getting rid of crime. Songhez, thanks for taking my call. Thank you for making your call, KGM. Going on to the more systemic issues that are associated with crime and certainly going into the deep history of South Africa, I'm surprised you didn't mention the word apartheid. There is a book out there, Apartheid Guns and Money, chronicling, if you like, the deep-rooted effect that was crime and corruption in the apartheid administrations leading up to 1994. That's something certainly that will be dealt with. Let's go to Parktown North, closer here in Johannesburg. Mamvoye, good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks to Lee Siko and your guest. Uh, my take will be that, you know, imperfection uh, powers uh, breed imperfection societies. The problem here is, this, is that, you know, since I grew up in the world, in the distant world, and I've been in this country, to that country, to, to that country, you know, uh, almost the entire globe. Uh, the problem, the biggest problem is that the very biggest uh, uh, organizations like your UN and these other organizations claiming to be uh, uh, fighting for human rights and for justice, uh, they are supported. You know, the funds that go in there, they are drug, drug funds, they are money from crime, money laundering, and, and, and what have you. Hence, they cannot solve the problem of this world, I, 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 of, of crime. I was saying, you know, you find the Middle East where uh, people are, are, are going to get hungry, but we have someone putting millions of, if not billions of US dollars in a, in a, in a, in a broken uh, institute, you know. And uh, once, someone, once a young person comes to him or someone who is a warmonger like him, psychopaths, I call them psychopaths, warmongers, and uh, actually express his intention to fight, which is terrorism. Then he's guided to go in, in the morning, go and fetch his money because he's going to call, cause terrorism. So you sit down and ask yourself the crimes that have been committed and no one is convicted because those the powers that be are criminals themselves. So you have a gangsterism of people in power ruling the, 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 the people and they contaminate the poor people on the ground. For me, you know, my solution is that we go back to what to ancient Africa. The criminals knew if someone would actually research shows us that the criminals would not do it if they've done it. I had a, a, a privilege of visiting prisons while this was a community safety. We went to look up some city. We went to the one in Foxford. No songers or you sit down with those, those people. It's a, it's a world of its own. It's a planet of its own. And no Western philosophy will solve crime because they are criminals themselves. And they run away with, with murder. So we need to sit down in society. So unfortunately, our kings are colonized. Our chiefs are colonized. Politicians are colonized. Leaders in society are colonized. You know, it's all about uh, glamour. It's all about flamboyant, you know, clothes and flamboyant houses and cars, but we're not going anywhere. We need to go back to our roots. 
so that we can actually sit down and say, how did our essences do it? White criminals were actually put in a rope in a, in a tree for three days and they come back, they're never seen again. Let's talk about these things. Thank you so much, Mum Vui. Perhaps, Ms. Robinson, I'll give you especially this last comment for you to respond to this perception of crime, but particularly the, 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 the impression that is generated, certainly from this perspective, that the West hasn't and does not cover itself in any form of glory. What are your thoughts in relation to the essence, essentially, of the last contribution? Right. I mean, I must say both... Question number two and question number three bring up big systemic issues that I think, quite frankly, are a bit beyond the purview of, of Attorney General Alliance Africa. That said, I mean, I think on the, the last question, I guess my point would be um, that is a perspective, a valid perspective. That said, I think there's also ways in which that, you know, this nonprofit organization is trying to make a positive difference in a particular way. It doesn't undermine, I guess, the, the larger issues of saying that, you know, there's, a certain, there's, there's corruption and there's self-interest. Um, those things do, do, do persist. That said, I do think Attorney General Alliance Africa is making its, its contribution. To the second speaker from Ahim Chang, um, I agree that there are fundamental issues historically, that have to be addressed right now to create a context where crime is not so relevant. That's absolutely right. Everything from, you know, land redistribution to ensuring that people have a dignified life, water, uh, sanitation, proper schooling, the opportunity to truly be members of the economy in a meaningful way, those are basic fundamental issues that have to be addressed. But when once the criminal justice people come in, that's not our lane. That lane is the lane for the executive branch, uh, for sociologists, for for others. So I, I agree uh, that if, if those fundamentals aren't addressed, you are you you, you will always have have crime. We we come in unfortunately when the crime has been committed, and then we have to figure out what to do about it. Um, the first speaker um, spoke to... The criminal the behind of, the criminal, essentially. Right. Now, I mean, and you know what? I, I do... Oh, right. Kingpin. Right. So I think, I think, first of all, never is a big word. To say that kingpins are never... Caught, I think, a bit of an overstatement. If I'm not mistaken, Minister uh, Mosulady just spoke about a uh, corruption ring within Home Affairs where there were people printing out passports, fake passports for people. Um, and my understanding is, in that case, in fact, one of the major players was indeed uh, arrested, and there are more arrests of significant people that are going to take place, and not just simply the people who are on the bottom. But that said, I think that the point that often the people that are arrested and end up getting prosecuted are minor players. And I think what that goes to is the incentives that prosecutors have. Prosecutors probably have incentives that say, you know, how many people do you successfully prosecute? How significant a case is this? Is this a game changer? 
are these the cases that really fundamentally change the game? So I think to get to the point of we go after Mark Kington, possibly the issue is changing the incentives for the prosecutors in face. Let's talk about that incentives question, and perhaps I should come back to you, Ms. Kazi. Are there sufficient incentives, not just for law enforcement agencies in this country to truly be committed in the fight against crime, but are there enough incentives among the ordinary South Africans to be as invested in fighting crime? In the United States, for instance, particularly with government contracts, you have the institution of the False Claims Act. If, if, if that is a correct legal instrument, and Ms. Robinson will co- correct and confirm otherwise. But if you know there is corruption, say, in the public matrix of government contracts, public procurement is perhaps a more familiar term in this country, you can then assist the state, prosecute that entity and or persons behind the corruption. And to the extent that monies are recovered, or assets for that matter that then become realized in cash. You claim a share of whatever is realized. Those can be serious game changers if the incentives are appropriate. What would your perspective what would your perspective be on that? Are, are, are you there, Ms. Kazi? I don't have any of my okay, I'll have to repeat that question. Some of the technology failed me. I'm gonna to listen to the voice notes in the meantime with the hope that by the time they are done we can re engage our guests. Let's have the conversation. WhatsApp voice notes on O six one four one oh four one oh seven. Good evening, Tessons. Good evening, the SAFM team. Good evening, fellow South Africa. This is the Born Free here in the Western Cape. <clears throat> Great conversation you're having. And I've got a question. Say, for instance, as the, the asset forfeiture department or body, how does it work when an individual has been made to believe that they were doing their tax returns as per normal? only to find out that they haven't been doing it correctly. And in the, in the case where they haven't been doing it correctly, um, how long does it take for the asset forfeiture department or body to investigate or to, to, to um, how can I say, to, uh, to, to write off such a, 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 a case? So that, that would be my question. Thank you. Evening Songhezo. Is it possible for our justice system, particularly the NPA and all the other clusters that exist, to do their investigation and then arrest instead of the opposite, arresting and then afterwards do they have to do the investigation, which then delays the whole process. Lazarus from Emalathlin. Justice delayed is justice denied. If Songhezo, I do all I possibly can to avoid prosecution and try by all means to delay the process. That will actually make me a participant of delaying 
my own justice if finally after 10 or even 20 years then i have to face the law lazarus for my malathin i think i know where the last voice note is headed to but let's talk about the fact that i, th- I think the first voice note is really a sars related question i'm just going to exercise some executive control and say shall we perhaps not respond to that because in fact if anything it would be irresponsible if we did but the second one in relation to Arrest, investigation, bringing the matter to finalization. Of course, you can't be arrested without probable cause or, you know, good enough reason. But I think the public equally need to be, in a way, Miss um, Kazi, need to be educated or the system itself needs to find a home in the South African public in terms of how it actually works. The, the, the Criminal Procedure Act and how, when it is in action, it actually manifests. The importance, therefore, of advocacy around the fight against crime in this country is as important as the crime fighting itself. Shaista? Thank you, Sungezu. I'm sorry I missed some of those questions when we dropped, but um, let me respond to your last point first. And, and you're absolutely right. I think that people feel helpless when they are faced with forms of corruption, for example. I'm going to use that because it's an easy example. And when I got cut off, um, there was a question around um, what, I think it was something like, um, what are the incentives? Incentives, yeah. Yes, for ordinary South Africans. And And shouldn't there be incentives for ordinary South Africans, much like in the United States with the False Claims Act? People can actually come forward where they know corruption has taken place. There's a serious carrot there that is dangled in front of one, and they can claim, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's say 25 cents out of every rand. It can be real money if we're talking about millions, in some instances billions. Thank you. I think think that's an an interesting and creative way of, of thinking around incentivizing um, ordinary people. But I think there's another form of incentivization that, that is currently available. And I think that the Zondo Commission has really shown us that in, in, in very tangible terms on our TVs over the past three years, is that whether it's a a form of corruption by Home Affairs issuing um, a fake document or an official assisting um, to issue a fake document at Home Affairs, or whether it's something around tenders and um, bribery around acquiring or accessing a provincial tender, a municipal tender, or a national tender. We've seen how Trillian regiments and, and the Guptas have been alleged to create these schemes of, of grand corruption. And South Africans have seen the consequence of that. We've seen the consequence in our municipalities' inability to continue to provide services. We've seen that in the potholes on the streets. So when municipalities or government or the province says there is no money, but at the same time, South Africans can see where so-called money has gone, that's the incentive to report. So while they are clearly very many creative ways to think around it and your example your u.s example is useful i think there are incentives that we see in our face on a daily basis certainly one that comes to mind for me is the fact that last year there was a lament in the city of joburg that we weren't able to afford sufficient um fire trucks 
or five station trucks. Let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry, because I've got literally a minute and a half to go, and sorry. I do have to okay. press this question with Ms. Robinson. Ms. Robinson, let's just get back to the workshop itself, because I think this, it, and it's great that we sort of went in the direction that it went, because this is what crime elicits from the people. Beyond the workshop, what do South Africans look forward to? What should South Africans, more importantly, expect, in particular, from those who occupy the seats in law enforcement spaces? Kim, are you there? Hear me? Oh, no, I'm speaking, but I can hear you. Oh. Please oh. start again. I can hear you now. Okay, great. Um, so I think South, South Africans pay the salaries of prosecutors and people in the criminal justice system, and so they should expect integrity, ethics, and competence, and excellence. And that, those are kind of the values that we're trying to bring to bear to this, to this course, that the work that prosecutors do is profoundly important so that we have society that is safe and where we can flourish. Um, so I'm hoping that from this workshop comes the real skills to address crime in a fundamental way that makes a, lot, makes a difference in the lives of, of South Africans. Indeed, we certainly do look forward to that. I don't know if South Africans are as excited or as keen. I certainly do hope it is because for far too long, too many have been dangled carrots that simply were no more than dangled carrots. We need to win this thing, and we certainly are Im We are impressed that there are still those like you who are invested in such initiatives, and more importantly, in just making sure that the rule of law is in fact the rule of law. Ms. Robinson, thank you so much for your time. Ms. Kazi, likewise, thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. you very much. 21 hours, everybody. It's time for news.